2: Hi, I'm Chiwetel Ejiofor, and these are the movies that changed my life.
1: Hey everyone, I'm Ian de Borja, and welcome to IMDb's Movies That Changed My Life, a podcast where your favorite stars break down the films that made them who they are today. This week's guest is actor and director Chiwetel Ejiofor. You may know Chiwetel from the modern classic 12 Years a Slave, or as Carl Mordo in the Doctor Strange franchise but you will be able to catch him as Copley in Netflix's The Old Guard, which hits the streaming service on July 10th. Chiwetel and I talk about how growing up in London, England, influenced his life to become an actor, his deep love for one of the greatest film directors of all time, Ingmar Bergman, and the three movies that changed his life. Once again, if you're enjoying the show, please be sure to give us a star rating and leave a review because every single one counts. Thanks to Dale underscore A and Jobadiah25 for the most recent five-star reviews. Uh, It is much appreciated. Thanks again for listening. Now here's Movies That Changed My Life with Chiwetel Ejiofor. I had a chance to watch the new Netflix film that you star in alongside uh, the fantastic Charlize Theron, uh, Kiki Lane, among many, many others, called The Old Guard. It comes out July 10th. Uh, It is based off a short form graphic novel, like a short miniseries that came out in 2017 by uh, Greg Rucka. Uh, and Leandro Fernandez, and they also wrote the screenplay, which is fantastic, and is directed by uh, the great Gina Prince Bythewood. Um, but for those who are unfamiliar, can you tell us what the Old Guard is all about?
2: Yeah, the Old Guard is uh, about a group of um, uh, of mercenaries who are immortal, and um, and they, you know, they don't really celebrate exactly their immortality. In fact, they, they wear it, you know, sort of as a heavy cloak, you know, as a duty, really. Um, and I play uh, Copley, who's an ex-CIA agent who, um, who in, engages the old guard in, um, in, a, in, a, in a job um, which sort of seems initially kind of straightforward and for very good reasons. Uh, but then obviously in the way of things turns much more complex and, uh, and everybody, um, uh, everybody has sort of, uh, different motivations, let's say. And, um, and so, uh, their road is much more complicated once they, um, they engage with, um, with me and a, f- and a few others. So, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of, that's kind of them. It's, it's, it's fun. And it's like you say, Gina Prince Biden directed it and it's, um, you know it's exciting, but it also has a kind of a healthy dollop of sort of existential angst I think which is um, which was exciting to me
1: yeah, one of my notes was powerful messages about immortality and mortality and the lengths people will go to to protect it, and then the lengths you know people will go to the harness at like the, the second act there there's quite a bit uh, your character in particular there's some great pieces of dialogue in there that sort of explains your relationship with immortality and mortality um, that I think fans will connect to. Uh, especially especially right now, kind of. Um, so something that stood out to me is that you have some fantastic scenes with Harry Melling. Mm. Um, some people who their name might not be as familiar. Harry Melling played uh, Dudley Dursley in the Harry Potter film series uh, Harry Melling please, Stephen Merrick and he is phenomenal in this you two have such fun scenes together um what what was it like working with him I every time you two were on screen together uh, I, I really enjoyed it as both your
2: performances yeah no he was great it was great to work with him because he um you know he really embraced this character in a really strong way and he made I thought just fantastic choices in terms of how he was gonna and how he was gonna how he's gonna play him and um you know and i think when you're making those kind of choices there's always a risk that they don't land you know or you know you sort of worry about it and that's why a lot of actors sort of shy away from kind of going there but you know it's um it's so important for actors to feel free to explore characters however they want to you know and in this case it was perfect and it just landed so well but you know i'm always um I'm always impressed by by actors who kind of just sort of step up to that, step up to those roles, which, you know, require something a little bit, I think a little bit big and a little bit different and um, and really go for it. You know, there's a there's a real, you know, there's a long tradition of that. You know, I mean, you know, Hann- Hannibal Lecter's sort of teeth-sucking hiss, you know, was <laughs> improvised apparently. So, um, you know, if Anthony Hopkins hadn't just gone for it, you know, you wouldn't have that moment. You know, you, you have to kind of, feel free to um to engage i think
1: just you know i saw him I was like oh oh that's cool you know that that's that study from harry potter and then he totally like you know i completely like lost that thought once he started talking and like the story started going it, it was he was really great you two together um so gina prince bythewood uh she also directed love and basketball which is uh you know an, a classic film um you haven't worked with her up until this point correct that's true. No, I haven't. I haven't. So, were you a fan of Love of Basketball before? And what was it like when you finally got to you know meet her and, and, and work on set together?
2: Yeah, I was. I was a fan of hers, and I loved her film Beyond the Lights as well. That, mm-hmm. And I really, you know,
1: I really engaged
2: with that. And um, um, so I was excited, and I was excited to, uh, for her to take on something of this size and something that's in the kind of the action genre, um, and with these two uh, female leads. Um, that I mm-hmm. thought was, was just a great way of looking at at the at, at, at the action genre, basically, of just coming at it from a from a different angle, um, and with somebody like Gina helming that, I just thought this is going to be really fascinating, really interesting, and um, and that, and with that being Charlize and Kiki, I thought, well, there we go again. It's just <laughs> it's, you know it's compounding the fascination and the interest and how you know this point of view and this kind of way of telling stories um that are you know sadly still quite rare and um you know and just uh, so i was really excited by by the prospect of all of that so um so yeah i was thrilled and then you know so i got to, when i met her and we had a you know just you know our first conversation um it was just very clear that um you know that she just was somebody who was just very interested in all of those kind of interpersonal dynamics obviously all of the action stuff and making that really work and making that really sing But with somebody like Charlize as well, one of her great gifts, I think, is that she is able to bring narrative to physicality, which is not Mm -hmm. very easy to do. And only very few people actually can achieve that. Um, And, um, you know, and that really means, you know, when you break it down, that you have to know fights inside out. You have to really understand fights and your physicality and be really in control of it to be able to put in character and narrative into a fight sequence you know i've tried it's not easy you know um you know so you end up having normally you end up you do the scene and then everything stops in the in the film or whatever and and then you have a fight sequence you know but what Charlize is able to do is to carry through the conversation if you like you know in inverted commas into the fight sequence which i just think is really impressive
1: yeah the action sequences are awesome um, they're super fun. There's some, it gets some pretty brutal uh, deaths along the way. It, and, and yeah, Charlize is such a phenomenal action, uh, action star um, that I, I, anytime I see I know she's going to be around like beating people up like I have to watch the movie. Um, <laughs> yeah. And it, and it yeah. definitely shows in this film. People, uh, make sure you check it out again, July 10th on Netflix. Uh, it's a ton of fun. Uh, lots of great action, really cool characters, really awesome plot line in general. And I'm sure after you watch 10 minutes, you'll be hooked and want to finish the whole thing. Right now, let's get into Chuatel's movies that changed his life. Uh, you picked three awesome films, uh, all foreign films, which is the first time on the podcast. So let's go in chronological order. Uh, the first one is the classic Bicycle Thieves from 1948. This has an 8.3 out of 10 with 139,000 ratings on IMDb. Directed by Vittorio De Sica. Written by Cesare Zavattini. Based on the novel by Luigi Bartolone, um Starring Lamberto Maggiorani and Enzo Stiola. Uh The story is a post-World War II Italian neo-realist drama that follows the story of a father and son uh, looking for the father's stolen bicycle that he needs to provide income for his family. Um, Chuotel, so tell us a story here. When was the first time you watched this movie? Uh,
2: I suppose I watched it first when I was quite young. And I may be like on VHS maybe or something, or maybe it was even playing. You know, there may have been, it might have been just a late late night special or an afternoon film on a Sunday Mm -hmm. or something. Um, and then I didn't see it for a very long time. I mean, it had, I liked the film. I think I didn't, I don't really remember it from that time. I just remembered that when I saw it again, that I, that I had seen parts of it before. Uh, and I saw it, you know, years later on Wiltshire, actually on Wiltshire Boulevard at the Lemley theater there. And, uh, um, in, uh, and they were just doing, they happened to be doing a screening of it. And I. Uh, I saw that they were doing a screening of Bicycle Thieves or The Bicycle Thief. It's either or it's sort of interchangeable. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I went along and, you know, and I just had the most incredible moment, you know, two hours of you know, watching a film that I sort of, that I could remember really. I just was completely, tra- just completely transported. And the fact that I was watching it projected and in a cinema watching this film, you know, I think really added to the overall um, feeling, um, and so I um, I did something that I have I have done since, but I do it so rarely. You know, I think everybody does it rarely if people do it at all. But I went out after the film finished and bought another ticket <laughs> and, <laughs> and watched the film again. <laughs> so I was like, so, and then a few days later, I took a friend of mine because it was still playing for about a week to come and see the film um you know uh who agreed that it was the best film uh, this is the best film you know uh so so in a way although i'd seen it when i was a kid i hadn't really i hadn't really seen it until much later and you know uh and and then it was just it just was so incredibly transporting that um that it is always been, you know, since that moment, one of, I think, one of the greatest films, you know, ever
1: made. Yeah, I, I had a similar uh, relationship with it because I had saw it when I was in high school when I was sort of building my cinephile chops and then I rewatched it, uh, you know, probably for the second time only um, in, in prep for this interview and it is so, it is so, so good. In terms of like Hollywood and film in 1940s, um, something I kind of thought of is like how Citizen Kane is like, what film is about on the grand scheme and like the most like robust showmanship of filmmaking uh bicycle thieves or bicycle thief is on the complete opposite spectrum like it is so rooted in reality um you know something is very famous about it is all shot on location in Rome which at the time especially for american films it was not you would never see that it was all on sets um there are no name actors at the time uh for bicycle thieves and it is so heartbreakingly realistic that you don't really see i mean even movies now that are very realistic and clearly influenced by this are not as like heart-wrenching and brutal um it it it, it's so fascinating is that something that sort of stood out to you like when you watch it those several times like the realism behind it
2: yeah i mean it's part of that the sort of um you know the italian neo-realist tradition you know and and, uh, and to seek a kind of in a way, single-handedly, I suppose, created that tradition. You know, the, the, the film comes in this kind of post-World War II, very depressed Italy, um, totally kind of broke, and and people tr- struggling to, to make ends meet, you know. Uh, and this family and this man trying to provide for his family in any way he can, and obviously it centers around him having a bicycle so he can put up posters of, Of um, you know of American movies, you know, (laughs) and there's uh, Rita Hayworth. He's putting up a poster, and then, of course, his bicycle is stolen, and he has to track down who stole it. And uh, you know, and and the visual poetry that you sort of go through with this, with this, uh, in just him traveling through Rome, and it's all you know, and it all centers around the time when you know people are arriving in Rome for this football match that has been sort of laid into the conversation, and people are going to come in uh, and watch it, and and yet he's sort of going through from all sorts of different places all these different corners of the city trying to find the guy that uh, that's that stole his bicycle so he could hold his little corner his tiny corner of the world together and it becomes such a sort of rich and beautiful parable you know of uh, mm-hmm. of uh, of of i think it still of the kind of of the modern day of of inequalities of a, of a person mm-hmm. who has to struggle against uh, Against society,
1: yeah. There's the shot um, when uh, the character he first gets his job painting, uh, painting up the posters, and it's, it's maybe for like two seconds where you see, first see him gluing up the poster, and he just has like the tiniest smirk of of pride. And when you watch that, like, God, it's it's so good because, it, it, like you said, sort of like the economic situation of a post World War II era, it really like captures like a side of Italy that, you, especially as you know, growing up an American. Uh, you don't see those sorts of stories told like that in World War II history. And you see just like the pride he's taking, putting it up. He's like, you know, I'm going to make $6,000 you know, dollars, uh, a week. I think he says to be able to afford my family, uh, you know, we're going to be able to go get fancy lunches and all sort of, and he's says thinking that. Uh, and then, you know, not too soon after that, he, he gets his bike stolen and like this, like the, the emotion of that two seconds, it sounds so subtle and it's like not dramatic at all, but like you feel for him so well. And and it's, it's really like an an incredible sequence there.
2: Heartbreaking, heartbreaking.
1: Yeah. You've seen this movie, I guess, you know, obviously countless times or a handful of times. And, uh, does the ending ever sit with you any different after all these times?
2: No, the ending is phenomenal. I mean, it's because it's so many things, you know, it's, uh, you know, the look on Bruno's face, the um, his son, mm-hmm. and that, and the actual tracking shot that's used on Bruno's face, oh. you know, it's oh my, just, yeah. it's, I mean, it's just the classic quintessential moment of cinema, isn't it? It's like it is, mm-hmm. it is all that you want from cinema, it is all the rush of emotion, it is all of the empathy, it is all of the kind of drama that and the uncertainty of what will happen next, what will the final moment be, you know. Um and you realize in that moment how invested you are in this this family, in this in this guy and his son and this life that he's built, you know. Uh you've gone so deep down the rabbit hole that you know you don't know whether you'll um you'll come out and then you know and then it's the sort of the the, you know the end of the film. And um and so that's why, you know, as soon as I walked out of the cinema, I bought a ticket. (laughs) I'm going to go back into that world somehow. I just, I, I felt so connected.
1: It's really a beautiful film. Uh, folks, you listening, you haven't seen it, again, check it out. Bicycle Themes from 1948. Fantastic pick. I'm glad I got to revisit it because of this. Uh, all right, let's go to your second pick. This is 1982's Fanny and Alexander. Oh, yeah. uh, it, has, it has an 8.1 out of 10 with 55,000 ratings, written and directed by the great Ingmar Bergman. Starring Bertil Guve, Yua Froling, and Pernilla Alwyn. Uh, and the story is Fanny and Alexander. They're a, a siblings that takes place in 1900 Sweden, and it tells a story of their relationship with their mother, father, and eventual stepfather, uh, the Bishop Edvard. Um, so, talk to me about this. When, when was the first time you saw this movie?
2: I mean, again, I saw this a long time ago, and then and then um, and then revisited it not too long ago, and then um, and then. Uh, saw the longer version. You know, there's also the sort of, Mm -hmm. you know, five and a half hour version. Uh, So the three hour version, you know, this version is the kind of the cut, you know, the brief, (laughs) the short, um, the Bergman (laughs) short. Um, But, you know, it's one of those films that um, it doesn't matter. It could go on for a lifetime. You know, you would be so, you would be equally engaged whatever length that the film was. It is so phenomenally done phenomenally made i mean you know the filmmaking quality of bergman obviously bergman is one of the greatest filmmakers uh, full stop mm-hmm. has ever lived and um, and his films are all magnificent and they're all sort of rich in different ways you know you might like one more than the other but you're kind of you know it's not they're all so extraordinarily realized you know and um and yet here is this film and it's later on in his life and later on in his career and for a while was thought it was going to be the last film proper film that he ever mm-hmm. that he ever made he ever embarked on and it has so much energy it's got so much kind of youthful ambitious kind of quality to it that you you could if you were squinting you would think that this was somebody's incredibly well made first second third film you know Uh, But yet, because it's got all of that kind of um, passion for filmmaking. You know, it's not, it's just not, there's nothing that is sort of rested about it. It, It's just Mm -hmm. ambitious and energetic and, you know, really focused and, and in total love with these characters and this world. And the highs are really high, this amazing Swedish family that are so kind of exuberant and they're all, you know, they're actors. The best Christmas party of all time. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) It's insane Christmas party and they're all actors and artists and, you know, and they, and they live these big lives and they're, you know, and they're in love and they're happy and they're also, you know, in their own way manipulative and, you know, and there's, you know, there's, and there's sort of internal dramas and politics. And then there's the patriarch passes away and, you know, and, and life changes for you know for Fanny and Alexander, and 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 so the lows become these, these these depths that they go to, and these painful places that they explore. So it's it's real, it's really it's real drama, and it really has an enthusiasm for drama, um, and um, you know, and I love it. I love its time as well. I love that that sort of post. You know, just in the early part of the 20th century and the kind of idea of that, you know, early 1900s before a layer of craziness, you know, unseen descended on Europe mm. where there was real, that kind of really capturing and going back and capturing that, those, re- that real sense of optimism, that real sense of that progress is possible, that life is possible, that all these kind of loves are possible and, and, you know, and the good will win out. At the end of the day, you know, and it's just it sort of does for me just capture a moment in time before um, before, you know, um, obviously the events of 1914 and then later events of the the late 30s, you know, uh, and just the collapse of everything, essentially. But um, but, yeah, I think it does that just incredibly well, you know.
1: Yeah, it's also such a love letter to the theater. Um, I think the oh, yeah. first shot even it has like features marionettes and someone like kind of peering through. There's so many shots throughout the film that Bergman obviously chose very specifically where things are looking through frames or things are looking through windows, sort of like staging everything as a play. Uh, and I thought that's interesting because this, like you said, this was intended to be his last film he shot, proper film he shot, uh, and it's also autobiographical in some ways. Um, so to me, it felt, it felt like it was like kind of you know, all the shots of the theater setting and, and the framing made it seem like he was trying to peer back into his own life, which I thought was kind of like an interesting concept there. Are, are you a fan of Bergman? Otherwise, like, you know, do, do you go back and see all, have you seen all his other films? Yeah, and stuff like that? yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. I mean, I love, I love Bergman's films, you know, and I love, I mean, they're so, you know, Wild Strawberries, of course, you know, um, you know the, the idea, I think, because, you know, Through a Glass Darkly, is probably, I think, was my introduction to Bergman because I think that was the first Bergman film I saw, which is kind of a crazy place to start. But it was, I just was, you know, um, I just thought that if you can create a film, you know, with four people on an island, so very limited sets, and you can take an audience to that depth of understanding of this family, of what is happening to them. And it's so, some of it is so challenging and so dark You know that it is that you feel sort of wrung through by the end of it, but it's just that he has created in this tiny little bubble, you know, this amazing reality. And of course, he does a very similar thing with even less people in Persona, which is Persona uh, is my favorite of his. Persona is an extraordinary film that you can kind of watch a hundred times and find different things in, and yeah, you know, and this relationship with these two women who are, and they're the only uh, characters in, in the film for maybe 90%, maybe 95% of the film is, you know, and the performances that he gets, you know, are, you know, and then, you know, I love scenes from a marriage as well, which is again, mm. another one of his very sort of long films, but I find scenes of a marriage. So um, I find it like, so funny. You know, I find that <laughs> the, 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 their marriage and their dynamic so amusing as well. Uh, and that he can layer in, you know um all of this um all of this kind of humor uh, that he finds and i think that he um i think there are a number of bergman films where he finds that kind of um that sort of a, a, a sly humor i think even in the seventh seal you know uh where when uh, when the the knight um discovers the knight is traveling along the road and his squire Discovers a uh, sees a man sitting down by a hill, and he taps the man on the shoulder, and the man is actually dead, and is and is so it's just a skull that sort of uh, flips up and looks at him, uh, and so he goes back to the knight, and the knight says something like, you know, um, did he, did the guy say anything? And uh, the squire says, oh yeah, he said quite a lot. <laughs> it's just <laughs> he spoke very eloquently about our circumstances. And <laughs> And, I, and there's always in Bergman these kind of sort of sly humor, and then but then he can take it to this incredibly bleak place as well, like Cries and Whispers, and where you are for the first time, you know, Cries and Whispers for me is when you are really confronted with uh, an artist really grappling with death, with death in a really profound way and a, in a terrifying way, and, this, mm-hmm. and these sisters together, again, very small cast, waiting and watching their sister, you know, who's struggling um, and dying, um, you know, uh, and it's so painful, uh, but but never, un- you know, just not that, you don't want to turn away. You're, you're just sort of so captured and engaged. So, yeah, I think that, uh, you know, I mean, as everybody knows, you know, he's one, one of the, uh, if not the greatest filmmaker, you know, it's uh, the experience of watching his films is, is transported.
1: Experience is the best way to experience, like to describe watching a Bergman. I mean, it, everything is so immersive, and in the case of Fanny Alexander, incredibly long, right? I mean, it's three hours. It's the director's cut. <laughs> there's a, there's a, <laughs> almost an almost six hour version as well that got released for it. Um, you know, and, and the way Fanny Alexander. My my last note on this is that uh, it it feels like it's not a Bergman, and then it is. If, if that makes sense to you, like the first half of the movie, maybe the first you know quarter of the movie feels very different than his other films for those who are like familiar with it. And then it becomes obviously like a Bergman where he sort of twists it and puts in this like psychological thing and like that. Um, it, it's so interesting. So um, did do, do, do you get the same feeling of that from watching this movie?
2: Totally, totally. And that's really what I mean, that you feel like you're going to watch this Bergman film and that, it's, you know, later in his life. So you're, you think that you're going to go, you know, he's going to out Bergman Bergman. You know, you <laughs> right. think you're going to really go down. The, you know. And actually what starts off is something very, very, very different. It's just starts off with this kind of lightness of touch, all of this sort of fun, all of this exuberance. And that's kind of what I mean about it feeling like, you know, as somebody's very early, very ambitious, mm-hmm. you know, but, uh, and obviously very brilliant, but, you know, this kind of, some of early film, but it then and then only as you realise the depth, because obviously one of the great things about Bergman is the way that he works with script. You know, mm-hmm. the depth of the scripts and and the uh, and the depth of these characters and the interactions, um, and you start to feel like, oh, actually, this is really turning um, turning a corner, and and is becoming. It has all of the richness of a Bergman film, but it also has. Uh, this playful humor again, but is even more stepped up now. These mm-hmm. circumstances that they find themselves in have this sly, subtle, you know, wit to them. And, um, you know, and I think, uh, you know, uh, um, you know, I just think it's, uh, yeah, I think it's exactly right. I think it's a wonderful example of him just changing a little bit of direction and, Um, and and being very surprising
1: with it as well. 1982's Fanny and Alexander. Again, if you're not familiar with Bergman, go and watch all of his movies. I think you'll find that in all of his movies, he has influenced many modern filmmakers today. Uh, And Fanny Alexander, if you want to brave the six-hour version... Please do it. it. Please do it. But there is also a three hour uh, director's cut as well. I also recommend watching it uh, in the Swedish language. I know there are a couple dub versions out there, but definitely watch it in Swedish with the subtitles. Um, You know, you kind of get the beauty of the language like that. Before we get to your last pick, I want to give some uh, love to your hometown, London, England, because London, England is one of my favorite cities in the world. I mean, I, I've been all over and every time I'm over there, I like immediately want to live there. Uh, how how do you think that influenced you into becoming like an actor and loving film? I know you did a lot of stage plays and a lot of Shakespeare stuff, uh, but how about like the city itself? Do you think there's like an energy about the city that made you want to be in theater or and or film?
2: Well, yes. I mean, you know, I, um, when I was, uh, when I, when I, the high school that I went to was, um, it was called Dulwich College and, uh. And it's um, a very nice school, but it was uh, and it's, it's, its main or one of its main distinctions is it was founded by Edward Allain, who was a um, director f- of Shakespeare's plays and Shakespeare's contemporary. You know, in the times uh, he directed the first sort of Shakespeare plays, and uh, and that whole area of Dulwich was, um, you know, it's named after a actors the street names is what i mean is named after actors john burbage on burbage road and so on. and um so growing up i was surrounded by you know um these ideas when i went to the edward hall to do my first plays first shakespearean plays you know this very rich sort of history in this neighborhood um and a lot of people from from there and thereabouts you know um you know, there was other schools, there was a sort of sister school, James Allen's Girls' School, and Allens, which was the mixed school, co-ed school. Um, and so, um, you know, there were people who had gone on to become actors who were out of these schools. And so there was this really rich uh, tradition from these three schools in this neighborhood that had, a, and the neighborhood in itself had a rich tradition of uh, of, of acting. So... Um, so, in a very real sense, you know, being in London, being at school, you know, was m- my first kind of real introduction to um, to a th- to a just a, a to the theatre, simply. And as soon as I started doing plays, I was just really excited about exploring, um, you know, this this manner of of self expression, which is kind of how I thought of it uh, then, and and do still think of it that way. Um, you know, I found it a remarkable way to explore self, to think of yourself channeled through other people and all of these other experiences in all these other places. Um, and this real celebration of humanity. So, um, you know, so it was after that process that I then started to make films. And, uh, in my early twenties, I started making films in, in the UK a lot more. And, uh, uh, and um, you know, I made a film called "Dirty Pretty Things" when I was about 24, and um, and that was a film that was very London-centric. But also, everybody in the film, you know, just these practitioners of, the- of cinema in the UK, you know, Stephen Frears and you know um, Chris Menges, the cinematographer, you know, people who are sort of part of a very kind of long tradition of cinema in the UK and uh, uh, and um, so I just felt like I was plugged into something there. And I felt, and I, you know, I also fell in love at that point with the poetry of cinema. And um, uh, so that was really a kind of starting point for me around then. And it was definitely very connected with with, with the UK and um, and the traditions of cinema here.
0: This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Visit SleepingDogsMovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's SleepingDogsMovie.com slash Wondery.
1: Let's go to your last film here. I'm very excited to talk about this. This is San Sole from 1983, uh, mm. 8.0 out of 10, with only 9,000 ratings on IMDb. It is written directed by Chris Marker. Um, there's no real cast in the film, um, but it is narrated by Florence DeLay or Alexandra Stewart, depending on which version you watch uh with the narration and the synopsis, I guess, is as I kind of want to put it is a woman narrates a contemplative rating writings uh of a seasoned world traveler known as Sandra Krasna. Uh and it is an examination of identity and time, um, largely between um, you know, Japan and and countries in Africa. Um that's kind of a hard way to describe it. It's hard to describe this movie at all. Um, but uh truth also what, what do you what was the first time you saw this movie? What was your experience with it?
2: I saw this film pretty recently actually.
1: Oh um, yeah. I hadn't, you know, I'd known of Chris Marker
2: because of La Jete and so, Mm -hmm. you know, his sort of 40 minute sci-fi film and that's excellent. I mean it's amazing. Yeah. Um and and some of his documentaries about the sixties revolution, Grin Without a Cat and um uh, but I hadn't, I hadn't seen Saint-Soleil, and, uh, and then it was recommended to me, and I watched it, and, um, you know, it, it, changed, it changed my life. It changed my perspective of what certain kinds of um, imaging can do in storytelling, and, um, and it just opened up my eyes to, uh, to this, you know, to something, which is a combination of things, this film. It's a documentary, it's a travelogue. And it's a kind of uh, poetic essay, you know, that is, um, that combined is, has a kind of meditative quality, but it, uh, but it talks about something really profound and powerful in the, in the sort of overall, uh, the overall idea of the kind of human journey and where time and memory meet and, and create our kind of perception of self and our perception of, of, uh, of, of of individualism and, and also, you know, and broader, you know, society, culture, all of these things, you know, he travels through Japan, he's in Guinea-Bissau, he's in the States, you know, he, and and he, and in each of these places, he's able to find this kind of, um, you know, he starts actually the film in Iceland and ends Mm -hmm. the film there, you know, and in each of these places, he's able to find the kind of connective tissue through all of these different realities, um, through the voice that is his, that is his voice, but it's says, you know, his sort of pseudonym's voice, as he, you know, and a, and a woman is narrating a letter that she receives from him, and um, it's profound. And the way that the images work together with the kind of editorial choices of these kind of, uh, these graphic matches, so that not only are the matches part of the, um, the narrative, experience you know that you can connect places to each other or incidents to each other but it's also part of the kind of spiritual experience of watching the film of understanding places connected and themes connected across us all and a certain kind of universality and then the ideas of a a sort of technology that is also um behind everything that is reaching in i mean in, in that way ahead of its time you know that this technology is surrounding everybody and is waiting to kind of pounce and capture all of this everything you know that he sees these you know at one point he goes to this um this store where they're doing these graphic these sort of graphic computer games and these imagings and these computer games and he takes images that he took of emus at, a, at another point and he puts them into this kind of graphic imaging machine, you know, and the last few lines are like, one day there will be emus in the zone, because he calls that image sort of network, the zone. And and I felt like it's ahead of its time, it's sort of understanding the, the the weight of technology that people kind of are in now, how isolating that is, how sometimes dispassionate it is, how removed it is from the human experience, and, and somehow going back to human beings and their memories and their understandings of their lives is such a kind of powerful, um, way to tell a story.
1: It's incredibly intimate. I mean, for, I think there are maybe no wide shots at the very least, very few wide shots throughout the whole thing. Um, almost every shot of the documentary feels like, a travel diary, like most shots are from the chest up of people, sort of really tight zoom ins, walking through crowds and all that sort of stuff. And uh, speaking of like relationships and humanity, my favorite sequence was he's watching a street festival and uh, he takes note of a woman across the street and he has this really beautiful piece of dialogue where he says, You know, I saw her, she saw me, she glanced at me for a second, you know, just for one frame. Uh, and it kind of talks about this like playfulness he had with this woman he had never met about how she knows he has a camera, he knows. She knows, and, like, there's this really beautiful play of these people who never speak, they never talk, and their interaction's got to be five seconds, like, in real-time tops. And um, it's, it's, like, profound in a way that I can't really explain because I think everyone has had a situation where they've noticed a camera on them, whether it's someone taking a photo at, like, you know, a theme park or uh, at a tourist spot or something like that or someone just kind of being a street photographer, and there's a weird, like, very personal moment you have with someone um that's hard to explain and it is captured and explained perfectly uh here and this is well ahead of time like you said ahead of time of social media where cameras are everywhere um and there's still like this like very real thing that's you know from 1983 that's very relevant today um so that was my favorite sequence from the film do you have do you have other favorite moments or is uh yeah no no i
2: love all of the sequences in guinea Bissau. actually that whole kind of way that he's taking footage from Guinea-Bissau and the revolution there, the successful revolution that that kicked out the Portuguese in Guinea-Bissau. And he is explaining this, that this was actually one of the revolutions that inspired revolution in the Western world. But then all of this is completely forgotten by history. All of it is completely sort of, the pages are just completely turned, I think they describe it as like history throws its empty bottles out the window, you know, mm-hmm. and which is such a great way of even explaining that. And he has this time in Guinea-Bissau then, and then he cuts forward to the leadership several years later, and he match cuts, you know, the leadership then and now some of the exact same images of people waving against the, uh, against the shoreline, or the leader waving against the shoreline, he then also himself gets undercut Um, it's, um, you know, I just think that that whole idea of, of pulling in all of these historical victories, all of these ideas that, and how, you know, that the tragic nature of us is that we tend to, you know, we tend to forget, you know, we constantly rewrite history and we omit so much, you know, and some of the things that we omit are useful. They're valuable. They could help us now. And he is and he's talking about that, you know. He's talking about arriving back on the Japanese islands and and tracing the path that the American GIs went through, when they were mm-hmm. in the in the war, and how there's tiny communities who experience and know of a world before that, you know, who have who have who so that is a recent memory to them. What they talk about and how they communicate, even though this particular group is kind of dying out, is holding on to the distant history of their communities and cultures, you know the the things that really inform and tell them the truth of who they are and I um, you know I just think that we <clears throat> we uh, I think there's so much in in the in the film that is about that how we compartmentalize and cherry pick uh, history and not really even the the important parts you know not even the real information um, and uh, and you know and it felt very beautiful that he was able to kind of um, to sort of recognize that and put that into a story in a way that feels so poetic and honest, without ever seeing, without ever seeming loaded or um, didactic, it's 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 easy and it's profound. You know, I mean, I I immediately when I saw the film printed out the entire all of the, 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 the all of the stories. Yeah, so yeah, it's like, it's like a book almost. It. Yeah, <laughs> you know. I just sort of read it for myself, you know, as well. And then you can look at the images on their own, you know, um, uh, as well. It's just such a kind of beautifully comprised, you know, um, put together um, story, a way of telling stories. It just doesn't, you know, it, it, it just hits you on a on an emotional level. You know, it just it really captures that and how to do that, I think.
1: Yeah, it's really like unlike any anything I've seen. I mean, I mean, documentary is kind of an interesting way to put it because it's really so. I feel like a film essay is almost a better way to put it um, because the, the narration is so core. It's very dense. Very uh, eloquent and intelligent, um, and it matches up with this the really like beautiful cinematography and something like is very like visceral and like graphics kind of blasting your face. Um, it, it's really unlike anything I had never seen it prior prior to this. Um, so thank you for for introducing this one to me. Yeah, no, that's um, great, and like, highly recommended to to anyone. San Sole from 1983. So uh, last question here to Attel. Do you see any, see any through lines between uh, Bicycle Thieves, Fanny, Fanny, and Alexander, and San Sole?
2: I think, I mean, I suppose the through lines are are where they hit me emotionally, I think. You know, that I feel um, that these are stories uh, that are so connected and so humanistic, you know, that they're just connected to the human experience so profoundly. And I think that, that that for me, I think, is what is so rich about any any art form that once you just connect onto the onto the journey, you know, of what um, I think what art is trying to do, you know, that it creates a kind of that art at its best creates a sort of family of man, you know, and that I think is is um, you know that these are all films from very different places in the world at different times exploring. Very different things, but I think anybody watching these three films can relate to all of these experiences and understand all of these experiences very profoundly. And then, and then to watch them uh, captured in the way that they are, in the artistic and poetic style that they have been made, and give the kind of human emotion its kind of epic due, its epic kind of value and 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 epic worth, um, I think is always so staggering to me. Um, uh, and, it, and it feels and I feel that it's these are only created by directors of incredible understanding and empathy and, you know, great heart and intellect. And um, uh, and, uh, you know, so in that sense, I feel that they're 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 connected on that journey.
1: Beautiful and perfect. Uh, thank you so much um, these are three fantastic movies again Bicycle Thieves Fan Alexander and Sound Soleil um, and don't forget folks uh, Chuatel is going to be in The Old Guard which is going to be on Netflix July 10th uh, it's a fantastic movie really really fun action sequences really great characters and I'm hoping we see more of it uh, any, any any, last things Chuatel?
2: no that's perfect that's just exactly right yeah thank you
1: perfect alright well thank you so much talk to you soon speaking thanks bye now Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to head over to imdb.com slash podcasts for more content on Chiwetel and to easily add the movies that changed his life to your IMDb watch list.